This episode is brought to you by Pepsi Wild Cherry. Pepsi Wild Cherry is bursting with delicious cherry flavor and a sweet, crisp taste that gives you more to go wild for. Getting wild may look different these days, but whether it's opting for a solo Friday binge watch or a big night out, everyone can indulge in their wild side with Pepsi Wild Cherry, also available in Zero Sugar. So grab a Pepsi Wild Cherry and get wild. Hello, everyone. Before we start the show, we'd like to announce our new partnership with Therese Eyewear. Therese specializes in Polaroid glasses for outdoor folks like us that won't break the bank. Now, they have many styles to choose from, whether you're biking, jogging, playing sports, or like us on the water all day where we need to keep that sun glare down to catch fish. Now, with a lifetime warranty, 60-day fitment replacement, saltwater corrosion, and scratch resistance, how much can you add, more can you ask for? Therese has something to offer for everyone. Now, don't forget to use our coupon code TIDECHASERS at checkout on their website at therese.com. That's T-O-R-E-G-E.com for a 20% off discount for all our listeners. Now, let's get on with the show. All right, welcome back, everyone, to another episode of Tide Chasers Podcast, where our goal every week is to connect our listeners to our special guests from the industry to hopefully help you become a better angler or at least learn something new that day. Uh, today's episode is going to be a little bit different as I'm, I'll, be, I'll be heading it myself solo. And also today's episode is going to be a little bit more technical and more specific. Uh, quick background on how I got connected with our special guest this evening. Uh, past few months, I've been searching around up and down the coast from Cape May all the way to Sandy Hook, looking for the perfect guest for this uh, very specific topic. Um, I reached out to a lot of my anglers, a lot of captains I knew, and asked, who is the best and perfect all-around person that I can get on the podcast to specifically talk about targeting big jumbo New Jersey tog or blackfish? A few names were tossed around, uh, but one name kept popping up to me multiple times, and this guy was already on my radar and on top of my list as I've been following him, attending his seminars, reading all his articles from On the Water Magazine and uh, Fisherman's Magazine. Now, I mean, at the time, I felt uh, we, as the podcast, weren't big enough in the industry yet to, for me to even reach out to him. But as if the fishing gods were watching over us, this gentleman reached out to me personally and talked to me and said he would love to be part of our program. And I couldn't even hold in my excitement. Uh, so without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, it's my honor to introduce you, uh, the legend himself, Mr. Frank Mahalik. How you doing, Frank? Great, Qua. How are you? Good, man. Good. I am super excited. I just got through breathing through my paper bag because my anxiety was kicking in <laughs> left and right because I got you on. So, you know what I mean? It's it's one of those things, you know, as a kid, you know, you always figured you see a star one day, you get starstruck. Well, I kind of feel that because honestly, I feel like you're one of those top tier guys that I've been following for a while. And just what you do, it amazes me. And the fish you put on the decks amazes me. And I'm, I'm hoping to be able to like learn something new today with you. I appreciate it, bro. I, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me. And I really appreciate you giving me the platform to share some great information with a lot of guys that maybe I can help them just, just a little bit. Plenty uh, of you guys help me along the way. It's my pleasure to share. And that's incredible because that's the way um, our, object, our objective on this podcast is always to find, you know, anglers like you that are willing to share and help other anglers be better, you know, instead of 
but as we talked a little bit off air was most of these some of these good guys they love fishing for it they're they're good at it but they want to take their secrets to their grave you know what i mean it's just i don't think so i think i think at a point yeah there are certain things you want to keep to yourself but at the same time what doesn't it feel better when you share the information and help people be better it's actually a tremendous compliment when I'll walk on deck and somebody will come up and share with me. Hey, Frank, by the way, check out my rigging. I caught my first double digit last week. It was the first big fish I caught that I didn't break off. And that's that's a tremendous compliment to me. It's even better for him, obviously. But it makes me feel like maybe I just helped a little bit because Lord knows I needed some help along the way. Boy, let me tell you, I lost a lot of fish. (laughs) I bet you did. All right. So let's start as our first favorite question that everyone always asks is, Frank, let us know about your background as an angler and even some of your early earlier influences into this obsession we call fishing. Now I talked to you and then, you know, your, your history and your background started when you said what you said, I was a little twinkle in my, my daddy's eye. I mean, I, you, yeah, that's, that, that's many years head start way above me, but uh, yeah, let's, let's kick to your background. Let, let's hear it. Sure. I, I grew up, uh, you know, my grandparents had a house in Brigantine. We had a, a Right down the end of the alley was Jolly Roger Marina. My grandpa had a boat there. My uncle Dominic had a boat there. And every day I would get up in the morning before my sister and mom, grandma woke up and I'd walk down to the dock and I'd go crabbing and fishing and I'd come home later on and we'd go to the beach. But I literally did that every day. And on the weekends, when my, when my dad and my grandpa would come down for the weekend, we would get to go fishing in the boat. So that was a really, really big deal for us to drift at back bays for fluke. But it was a tremendous time to grow and really, really learn a deep love for the salt. As years went on, when I turned 17 years old, I had a 1970 F-100 truck. I had a tin boat with a five horse. Yes, that's a five horse outboard. And uh, I I was pretty sure I died and gone to heaven because all of a sudden I started fishing for things that I had no idea existed. I I never caught a striped bass because my grand, you know, we had the boat in the water from Memorial Day to Labor Day, and that was about it. I had no idea what a blackfish was. But once I had my truck and my and my tin boat on a trailer, I was able to start branching out and developing more into an angler that my dad and grandpa, they were okay. They had a lot of fun, but uh, they didn't, never did the stuff that I do. Five horsepower, man. You were really hauling down that inlet or the, the back marshes, weren't you? Five. It was a Goodyear CB engine. It was really an Evan Rude, but it was actually said Goodyear CB. Oh man, that's crazy. So, and from then on, uh, how did you get into the whole like blackfish thing? Oh uh, well, as years went on, I you know I bought a at one time I had a 19 foot MFG with a 135 Evan Rude on it. Man, did I catch fish with that boat! And after a bunch of years with that, I sold it and I had a. I had a 21-foot Chris Craft walk around with a 225 on it. And these were boats that I was able to get electronics, you know, get real electronics on. Something that was more seaworthy that I could take out and I could go wreck fishing by myself. I mean, when I first started wreck fishing, we used to use Loran C. And that was, that was you were happy to have that. It wasn't like GPS and chart plotter. It, it was Loran C, bro. And it was, it was good stuff. But you know what? It was really enjoyable to learn how to be able to find that wreck and mark the wreck with a couple of floats and, you know, to drop your Danforth and come back on it and throw a grapple off the side and get yourself in there. 
I'll never forget the first day I did it and I had my dad with me and I caught a couple blackfish that were like nine, 10 pounds off the flower wreck in Brigantine. And my pop was looking at me that day, like, okay, now I see there's, there is a little more to this than, than what I had originally thought. Cause he didn't know anything. You know, we used to fluke fish and weak fish and stuff like that. And to, it's funny to turn some, to turn your dad onto something that's totally new is pretty cool. And that was a, that was a great day. I was blackfish back then uh, like a targetable fish? Because from what I hear from like a lot of like a lot of the older guys that do target them, blackfish back then were considered a trash fish. Not a lot of people target them. They're, they've always been very hard to fish for and they've been very hard to catch in land. So back then it was a matter of trying to find green crabs for bait. Once I found them in the bait shop, I would go in there and buy, you know, uh, maybe a, maybe a gallon or two gallons of green crabs and we would go out togging for a lot of the day i wouldn't say that they were trash fish they always had their unique dedicated following but even around that time that was a time when i was starting to fish on the big mohawk three with gary fagan and you know i learned what blackfish were by read looking at the weekly fisherman magazine and all of a sudden it came into like October, November, and I start seeing under the headers, under the big mohawk, it was like togomania. And I'll never forget one day I called Gary Fagan. I wanted to get a report and see what was going on, see if I could get on the boat. And his recording said, togomania is alive and well at the Jersey Shore. And I was like, oh my God, it was like so exciting. So me and a couple of my buddies went down and we hopped on the mohawk and we went out there and he, he got anchored up on the rocks. And I'm looking at the guys and we're all throwing, there's, I mean, the boat's railed and we're throwing green crabs in and I'm looking down the rail, like the boat no longer came tight on the strings and there's blackfish flying over the rail. And I was just like, oh my God, like I had barely, you know, barely managed a blackfish or two before on my own boat. It was just so exciting. I didn't really know what to make of it. You know, we were, we were kind of the new guys there. So we caught a couple fish and called it a day. But as the time went on and I started going back more on Wednesdays on my other day off where I actually met this old fellow, his name was Stan. He was up on the bow and I'm sure somebody knows his name and please forgive me because I don't know, but he was on the bow to Mohawk. He was the guy who used to run the, um, he used to run the kitchen on board, make some hamburgers and coffee and stuff. And he was up there with a sidewinder and he was bail and some fish and and i'm standing right back to where the bow turns into the turns into the side of the boat i'm you know giving him like 15 20 feet and i'm just watching him and he's smoking them and i'm baiting my hook dropping to the bottom swinging a miss new bait dropped to the bottom swinging a miss finally after about 10 o'clock in the morning he kind of took pity on me and he looked back at me he goes you going to catch a fish today or what i said I practically had tears in my eyes you know and i'm like i, I don't know evidently i'm not i think i'm just gonna sit here and watch you all day and he goes, okay, next time we move the boat, I'll help you. And when, when he pulled, you know, they pulled the hooks and he came over, he looks at my rig, he goes, well, this is what's wrong. I had like a store-bought rig with that black mono with a three-way swivel and Virginia hooks. It was a tandem bottom rig. i never forget, he looks at my 30-pound Andy mono, he bites through it with his teeth, like, this is what's wrong. He chomps through it and um, he says, here, this is how you do it. And he, and he ties a Belmar rig. He's like, zip, zip, zip. He puts a sinker on, takes a rig out of his bag, ties it on. It's a homemade tandem bottom rig that he tied the hooks. And he goes, now here's what you do. And he shows me how to bait, bait it with the green crabs. And he goes, now when you drop it to the bottom, you're going to feel little taps. Don't swing. He said, wait till you feel a more pronounced, stronger tap. 
when you get that swing. And sure enough, by the end of the day, I started catching a few fish. And he said, he invited me back next week. He said, well, are you going to come back? I said, well, yeah. And he goes, okay, I'll make the coffee. You bring the donuts, meet me at six o'clock in the morning, and I'll show you how to tie the rigs. And next Wednesday morning, six o'clock in the morning, I'm sitting in that booth inside the, inside the old Mohawk, the old black and yellow one that Fagan ran and had like three diesels in it. Mm -hmm. I think it was like 25 foot wide. It's gigantic. And, um, that's how I learned how to, you know, how to tie tandem bottom rigs and such. And it, it really got me going. It let me find a little bit of success. And once I learned that Belmar rig, that really helped me a lot because I stopped breaking off so many fish. Very, very interesting story. See, guys, that's that's why I said, you know, don't don't underestimate party boats. You know, you find that one special old guy just hanging out by himself in the bow or on the back stern or somewhere like that. There's a reason he's there. He's he did he didn't specifically pick a random spot. He's there. So talk to them. You know, reach out to them. Talk to them. They're not they're not going to bite you as long as you're respectable. Like you know, like Frank said, you know, you already gave him 15, 20 feet earlier, and now he sees that you you respected him enough to be hanging out that far. So he brought he got closer to you and talked to you. You know what I mean? So just reach out to these guys. You know, they're, they're these guys are on here every day. They know every nook, every cranny, every little secret, and they'll help you wherever they can. You know. Even something small as a new learning a new Belmar rig, you know, it totally changed Frank's game. So, guys, so like I said, don't hesitate to ask anyone on board for help. If you need help, don't let your pride get in the way. Ask for help. That's how we become better fishing. So, um, for sure. Out of all species of fish in our area, uh, why is blackfish your favorite, and why is your fa why is it your favorite to target? Blackfish are such a unique challenge. I mean, they really tend to push the angler and their gear to an, to an extreme place. Um, if you don't have the right rigging and you don't have the right gear, you're not going to lose the small fish, but you're going to lose the big ones that you never stop and they're going to haunt you forever. I also really enjoy the skill of of finding the wreck and positioning the boat on top of the wreck. And like I said, when I was doing this a long time ago, when I was running my boat outside, that was before I had kids. Once I had kids, my kids very quickly got old enough and then they started playing, my son started playing ice hockey. Obviously money was a, was a point to be concerned with. I sold my boat. I use my friend Herbie's 22 foot Mako center console like it's my own. So I'm a very, very lucky man. But I started fishing all the backwaters behind Margate using a 22-foot Mako. So between the, between the bridges, the rock piles, the couple wrecks that are back there, and the sod banks, I started doing that as the kids were, as the kids to save money and also as a way to get my wife and kids out on the water with me. You know, once my kid was old enough and he was away playing hockey and then he's in law school, I don't have to worry about that stuff anymore. So We'd reached a period of time, I guess about seven or eight years ago, that after fishing for Tog in the back for so many years, I really was itching to get back out in front and, and really learn what was going on. And, you know, I've heard people talk about this before, but I've caught tens of thousands of blackfish in the backwater. From the bridges to side banks, near the inlets, whatever. I don't, I think I might have saw one 10 pounder caught one time. I have a couple in that seven, eight pound range, but I mean, literally tens of thousands. So if people think that like, you're going to get double digit fish from like an inlet jetty, 
Like, nah, bro. Really? <laughs> that's that's really really a low percentage play. Oh, you just broke but the heart. You just broke the heart of many jetty fishermen hoping one day to pull up a double digit tog from the rocks. Hop on a boat. Come on, let's give it hell, man. Hop on a headboat. Those headboats, they know where they're going, and there's really not a bad spot on the boat. I mean, it's really nice to be able to get, you know, you got the guy rolling them in the back corner. It's really nice to go up there and snuggle next to him, but you won't be making many friends doing that. So just so you know, if you're looking to get some advice from somebody, don't go in and try to muscle into his spot because you won't be friends. Yeah, we're going to get into that in just a little bit. Uh, so this is where we're going to start digging a little deeper, a little bit more technical behind the methods of targeting bigger specimens of tog. Uh, now, let's let's start with the general season for targeting black blackfish or even bigger blackfish to increase our chances of catching like that one, that one big one. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, you can discuss water temperatures, clarity, depth, current, whatever, whatever you usually go into your whole formula of looking for that big one. April's a great time. April's a, a great month to fish them. And normally, you know, blackfish season in New Jersey, it opens like early November. For big blackfish, I'm really usually pushing more between like Thanksgiving and maybe mid-January. Once it gets to like that third week in January, once I see Jerry pulling his boat and I see Daffin pulling his boat, it, it's kind of shot at that point. I mean, you, I'm sure you can go hop on a headboat and they'll take you for a ride and maybe you'll catch a fish or two. But like I said earlier, it really becomes a low percentage play and, it, and it's cold. And, you know, so it really becomes a thing. A lot of times this time in the winter, guys go south and, you know, guys want to go fish out of Ocean City, Maryland and stuff. There's a ton of big fish down there, mostly because those guys build a lot of reef. And they really fish differently down there too. A lot of the structure that they fish on there is a lot of wrecks and a lot of places that they fish, but they have a very unique thing down there. They have natural bottom. Some mm-hmm. places they fish are just natural coral beds, um, where up here, it's different. You're, you're on a wreck, you're on a rock pile, you've got mussels, you know, you've got things going on. But down there, that coral bottom um, it can really be a game changer, because sometimes when they're on that natural bottom, there's not a lot of wreck or structure to cause the fish to break off. Now we all know that those guys are, you know, they all have their pet spots. Today was a beautiful day. I know they were able to run anywhere they wanted on the ocean because it was flat calm. And today was one of those banner days. And you know what? God bless them. I'm glad the boys did so well. I know they had a great day on the morning star today. So I'm glad they did great. Nice. Now as for um, like water clarity, cause I've, I've found myself as when I'm out there on the jetties and stuff, like I look at the water and it looks like it has this little bluish green tinge to it. So when I see that, I, I, I always tell myself and the other guys, like, Hey guys, that looks like super toggy water. Now, is there a myth, is there like a myth to that? Or is that actually like, do you think talk prefer more cleaner water or do that more murkier water? Really murky water will put a bite off. And this is particularly inshore Mm -hmm. because once you get five miles offshore, the murky water kind of goes away. Now it'll be there. If, if it blows Northeast for three or four days, it'll, it'll roil that water up. And that's a great time. If you can, you know, fish some really tall structure, get up off the bottom because that sediment is going to be real close to the bottom. Mm -hmm. So if you fish a piece of structure in 70 foot of water, that's 20 foot high. Well, that 20 foot is probably going to get you out of a lot of the sediment. And a lot of times the blackfish will be up there higher 
on that high relief bottom. Um, insure, absolutely. Insure everything messes with the blackfish because they're very touchy. Um, the incoming tide is normally going to be nice and warm, like coming in in the fall because you got the, the warm water in the ocean. The tide temperature doesn't mess with you too, too much in the fall as it does in the spring. When that incoming tide comes in in the spring and that ocean water is really cold, a lot of times it'll, it'll shut them off. Um, murky water will shut them off. A lot of the dirty water in the back happens real easy. You know, you get a hard west blow for a day or two, it turns into a mud puddle. Barometric pressure will really mess with blackfish too, man. If you've had a, if you've had a really, really raging high pressure system, and one day you were out there and you killed the blackfish and you went out there the next day and it was even better. And then you go back the next day and it's still bluebird sky, not a cloud. Everything's perfect. And you go back the third day and you don't get a bite. You literally do not get a bite. And sometimes that extended period of high, pre high pressure will literally give them a headache and they will, they will just lock down and, and I don't care how hard you try, you're not going to get bit. That's crazy. I didn't, I didn't know it all expect. Uh, all that would affect them because um, i remember one day i was out talk fishing all day it was bluebird skies we bite was so slow it was off the rocks it was a super slow nothing crazy and then a storm rolled in right out of nowhere a storm rolled in felt like a monsoon with brain was pelting us on every single but that 45 minute that the storm rolled in all the big fish fed you know we had i think we had 10 fish between two guys back to back over over five six seven pounds like, mm -hmm. but, but after that 45 minute window was gone, it stopped. Tog are very, they are very unique fish. They, whenever something changes, they change. You know, there's a, there's a time during the day when you're out there, when you're on the boat and we're looking around and everybody's catching fish, you know, everybody's getting bites, everybody's catching fish. And all of a sudden everything kind of slows down. All of a sudden nobody's getting bit. That's the time when I'm going to go, you know, I'm going to go get a nice crab and bait it up and toss it out, you know, a nice softy and give it a good soak because just be, sometimes the little fish stopped biting because maybe you got onto a spot and you picked through the little fish. And now all of a sudden the big fish will come out and they're, they'll start looking around, you know, trying to grab something to eat. But maybe it's because the tides, maybe the tide's starting to slack off. Maybe it's going to be slack water and the tide's going to start going the other way. Whatever the reason, whenever things really slow down, whenever the bite slows down, that's where it's time to me to switch gears and really start fishing for big fish. Because when the big fish hit, it'll, you know, you'll be out there for 10 hours, but there'll be a period of 12 minutes where like four double digit fish were caught on the boat. I have no idea why, but all I know is I'm starting to learn when I, I can kind of sense when things are starting to change. Either it's around the tide or for whatever the reason, we're moving off to a different spot at a wreck or something's going on. But I don't fish for, I don't fish like whole crabs all day, every day. Cause if I did, a lot of times you really wouldn't catch hardly any fish, which I don't mind that. I'm glad to trade one big fish for a lot of little fish. But I, we also know guys that are excellent black fishermen and they're really, really good at catching small, medium, and some large size fish. But these guys, you kind of fish different for small black fish than you do for large black fish. It's just a different philosophy and you kind of have to train yourself to do things differently. Right. So I was, I'm, this is something that I always pondered and I always wondered, I hear it uh, to me, I think it, it's a myth, 
but I've never been able to like solve this myth is like uh, big fish, slack tide, true or false? Yes. Do it. Do it, right? So slack when tide. Things are changing, do it. Absolutely. So the, you're, so, I mean, as, you know, as we target other fishes, big fish, big fluke, big bass, we know that big fish are lazy, right? So they don't want to put themselves into a situation where they have to fight current to find food. So slack, that's, that, that, that was my idea was like slack tide, not a lot of current. They don't have to fight current. They, they can just kind of mosey on around and look for that bait. So I'm assuming big fish, slack tide. I'm going to throw something a little different at you now. Okay. Picture yourself fishing inshore in 30 foot of water next to a side bank. Okay. okay. Mm-hmm. You have the, you have the water pouring in through that inlet. The inlet may be 50 foot deep. All of a sudden it's compressing up to 20, 30 foot. It's coming shallower and shallower. There's all kinds of islands that are channeling, channeling this current and it's becoming more compressed and more compressed and more compressed. So when you're next to, when you're in a water in the back bay behind Margie, you have this roaring current. Okay. Yeah. When it's a moon tide, it's even more roaring current. When you go five miles offshore, there's no current. Ten miles offshore, it's like you're in a mill pond. You put a crab on a two ounce a two ounce jig, you drop it over the side, it goes whoop, right to the bottom. Nothing, you know, barely any perceivable current. Sometimes there's a little bottom current to move it along. But my point is, inshore waters, we have this tremendous current to fit to face and contend mm-hmm. with. When offshore, you really don't have that. What I'm getting at is sometimes with that moon inshore with that current, sometimes they'll eat good when the tide's running. And if they're chewing really good when the tide is running, when the tide starts to stop, you might get a little flurry and then that bite will stop. And it'll stop during slack tide. When the tide starts going the other way, sometimes they'll chew on, on the outgoing also. It's just sometimes it's the opposite where when they're, when there isn't a moon tide sometimes when there isn't a moon tide sometimes they'll chew chew better when the tide's running and they'll stop when it's slack tide when there is a heavy moon a full moon or a new moon sometimes they won't chew when the current's running but then when it's slack tide they feed like all hell for an hour so every day's different with blackfish the bite changes daily i i wish i could figure them out better but that's all i got inshore is definitely different than offshore way uh, different i guess that's just talk fishing right uh, they're not like bass it they're is. not the like most game fish that they're predictable right they're patterns like talk fish there ain't no patterns there's and if you can just let us know because you figure it out and you you got frank beat if you could figure out a talk pattern on all these years <laughs> for sure believe me i fish with some guys man you I fish with some guys that it's so humbling. I mean, like to go on Fishmonger and watch Jerry Pastorino fish out the window, you'll want to like jump off the boat on your way in. You can't, you can't compare yourself to guys with such tremendous skill. And, and I have so much respect for guys like Jerry, Tom Daff, and a lot of my friends from the Fishmonger. I mean, I've stepped on the deck of this boat. I literally stepped on the deck of this boat and looked at all the, all the guys there, shook all their hands, said good morning. <laughs> And I'm so humbled because I realized out of the 10 fares on the boat that day, seven of these guys had landed 20 pound blackfish in their lives. And I'm just like, Oh God, please help me. You know, <laughs> but there, it's just so, it's just so awesome to be in a place like that. But to watch a guy like Jerry, he's so skilled. You can't watch a guy like that and think that you're going to do that. Cause like, yeah, bro, you can't. 
You know what I mean? Best thing to do is just try to take some notes and figure it out. Yep. And very, very, very skilled guy. As good as a captain is, is you put the rod in his hand and he's even better. Amazing. Yeah. That's what, that's where we're going to jump into the next one. Uh, so, so we finally picked our season of fish. Um, how do we decide head boat or charter boat pros and cons of each? Take what you can get. I've been doing this for a while. So I have, I have a group of guys that I invite in my charters and I may have like in April, I have like three charters and my friend Mark who fishes with me regularly, he has four charters. I invite him on all of mine. He invites me on all of his. So that's three guys right there. Between that, we, we fill in the other three guys. But unless you have a group of guys that have existing charters with these, with these excellent boats, it's really hard to think you're going to get on them. That's not, that's not to say there's not a lot of great boats around. Um, there's a lot of young guys that are coming up that are doing great stuff, like the white crab boats. They're doing really, really good. Um, you have the CL. Um, you know, these are boats that are available. They're not booked the whole year in advance. You can go, you can contact them now and probably get some charters for next year. Now, if you're waiting to get, if you're waiting to get an opportunity to hop on these boats. When you hear the bite is good and you're going to call up and you're going to say, yeah, I need a, I need a, the third Saturday in June for fluke season. It's like, you're going to get laughed at really good. You're not putting yourself in a good position there, but beginning in beginning black fishing head boats are really, really the way to go. I mean, you can pick your weather days. You, you don't really have to make a commitment financially or otherwise if you go with two or three of your buddies and a fourth one wants to go, it's easy to invite them along and you get a chance to go out and learn. I think a lot of the learning you can do nowadays, information is so available. I mean, if you just look at the Fisherman Magazine articles online, you'll see a ton of, you know, articles from me and other guys, really good pictures, uh, things to help you out. I mean, we talk about what kind of hooks, what kind of leader, how to tie the rigs you're already miles ahead of where I was when I started. True. Uh, any advice you can give to those guys just jumping on their uh, first head boat, you know, um, like etiquettes or any of those, what kind of good advice can you give for new guys or even, even existing guys that fish head boats for, for a while, but you know, just something that could help them out just hopping on the head boat. Yeah. Um, I think when, when you're the, when you're the new guy in a group, even if you're a really, really good fisherman, I think it's really important to, to try to fit in. You know, I, I don't want, I never have to go onto a boat and tell people who I am or what I'm doing or how good I am. I, I have never, ever enjoyed fishing with that guy, but I'm the guy that I'll show up on a head boat and I'll bring like two dozen donuts and I'll just put them out on the tables for everybody. If I'm going out on a charter, I mean, this time of year, it's tough because it's cold, but a lot of times in the summertime, I'll bring a, I'll bring a Sicilian pizza. And I'll just, you know, throw it on the table and, you know, everybody have a snack, you know, and, and it's just something to share. It's not a big thing, but I think it's just a matter of courtesy and uh, having a certain amount of class and respect for yourself as well as for the other fishermen. Because if you hope to be respected someday, I kind of think that starts with showing respect for everybody. Uh, would you would you treat it as the same on like a like a charter boat like a six pack 
um, like you think the etiquette's the same or like how do we even build a good relationship with like, like the captain and crew? Because, you know, you're talking from like headboats where anywhere between 20, 30, 40 guys to like a, a, a charter boat that has anywhere between six and eight guys. That, that's a little bit different, right? Well, when there's six guys on a charter boat, number one, you're all friends. So the conversation can can become very colorful at times. <laughs> but at the same time, when you're on a char when you're on a head boat, there's a lot of guys around that you don't know. You know, you catch a nice fish. Next thing you know, somebody's coming up and they're like, you don't even have your fish out of the water that and there's guys already dropping their hook in front of you. You might have to give them a little bit of a look, like, yo, get away from me, will you? I mean, you do have a right to stand up for yourself, but at the same time, you don't have to be arrogant, rude, or anything else. A lot of times these regulars on these boats, they will literally take up like the entire stern of the boat. It makes things a little bit rough sometimes, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. But again, find find your spot, get on there. Believe me, it's not just the stern of the boat that's, that's on good bottom. That captain has guys paying a hundred bucks a piece. He wants to put the whole boat on some good bottom. And sometimes, you know, if, if you're up towards the bow, I mean, I've had a lot of days where I'm up on the bow of the boat cast in between the anchors and, and have, I'm, I'm getting my bite up there. There's guys around the whole boat catching fish, but I'm flipping them up between the anchors and, and bailing nice fish. I got my own little bite started up there. I got my thing going. That happened to me one day on the Osprey. I went on the boat. I went to go up on the bow and there's these two guys on the boat and they got GoPro cameras like all over the place covering the whole bow. And I'm like, guys, mind, guys, mind if I fish up here? They're like, no, no. And they caught a fish on a jig and they're all happy. And, you know, they're high five in for like this little two pounder. And I kind of worked my way up there and I started fishing and I'm, you know, during the course of the day, I'm, I'm doing pretty well. And that was exactly that day. I'm flipping up between the anchor lines and I, and I had a really nice, really nice uh, catch a, a nice fish that day. And it wasn't too much longer, like a couple hours after I went up there, they took all their cameras and like put them on the other side of the boat because I don't know, I guess they were a little camera shy. <laughs> Just a little bit. Now, I know sometimes when you're on a head boat or a party boat, um, like, I mean, uh, structure isn't a factor, but like for, you know, guys like me, like with small skiffs or even guys that they're do it yourself with your own vessels, um, usually what type of structures are we looking for when we're looking for blackfish or even bigger blackfish? Now, is it the bigger the piece, the better the chances of finding that big fish, or is it better just to kind of jump around and find smaller pieces? Big fish do move inshore from time to time, but all of them don't. A lot of times when you, the smaller fish will migrate inshore and they'll migrate offshore. They'll move around a little bit more. The, that's why the fish we get in the back are, are much smaller. The blackfish seem to reach a point in time where I think when they reach around that eight pound or so size, they seem to want to get offshore. They want to get into a spot that they want to call home whether it be five miles offshore or 25 miles offshore. But a lot of times these really big blackfish are actually homebodies where they live in a certain wreck. They don't migrate. When the water temperature gets too cold, if it's only, say, five miles offshore, a lot of times they'll just kind of go semi-dormant. You know, if the water's 65, 70 foot, I sleep if the water is that, that cold. But the fish that's 20 miles offshore and 100 foot of water, he's not sleeping. He's steady eating and steady growing all year round. 
and they actually live on in that wreck. They don't migrate too much. They don't move around a lot. They even, I mean, we even used to think that all blackfish spawn in the backwater, right? Mm-hmm. Kind of not so much. We've seen blackfish 20 miles offshore where it's like a, um, it's almost like a bull and harem situation where the big male blackfish has a group of females. And as the females swimming up towards the top of the water, 20 miles offshore, the males are nudging the fish on their way up and they're spawning right there in the middle of the ocean. And it's like, wow, it just, you know, when you see things like that and you hear things like that for certain people, you realize like everything that I thought kind of doesn't hold water. Yeah, like see, that's that's my takeaway today. I I never knew that blackfish spawn offshore. It's just it's one of those things. See, you you lit something up for me today. That's just something because that, that's I, where they live. That's where they spawn. Because I know for I know for during 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 spring, like I fish for them in the back sometimes, and I I'll see them breaching. It's like the weirdest thing in the world watching a blackfish just breach like mm-hmm. one or two two three feet out of the water, just airing out. I'm just like that felt like a like a, a a bluefish porpoising when you hook one up it's just it's right. like two feet out of the air i'm just like what was that but it's a blackfish it's yeah. the most amazing thing i've ever seen but to see yeah, that they're not really really big blackfish no no they're not they're not like they're like those like three two three four pounders but i mean 100, 100 like 25 miles offshore you're seeing this but they gotta be jumbos doing it it's gotta be crazy right? exactly I, i've confirmed this from several captains very well-trusted captains who are, mm-hmm. you know, e- exceptionally knowledgeable. So I, <coughs> I have confirmed it. Cool. That's, that's some interesting. I, I definitely want to see that one day. Um, all right. So we booked our boat already. Uh, now let's start putting together that gear that we're going to put to the test. Now I've attended some of your seminars and you've always stressed and very importantly stressed, make sure your gear is always top notch because you never know when that trophy is on the other line. You know, that's something it's something you talk about a lot. Um, now, when searching for a rod and reel combo for this type of fishing, and when I say this type of fishing means deep water, uh, rig fishing, when I, jig fishing is something totally different than what we're doing. But today we're talking about rig fishing. Uh, yeah, what, what are these new guys or, you know, our listeners looking for when they're trying to put together that ideal rod and reel combo? Ideally, what you're looking for, and I'm not kidding when I say this, you have to make sure it it does what you want it to do. It has to suit the way you want to fish. Um, the Century Pro Togger is my baby. It's exact. It is just a flat line fishing machine. It balances perfectly in my hands. Let me take a step back. I want to. When I first started getting back into the black fishing, back into the oceans, I I want you know more offshore. I wanted to get some new tackle and i spoke to a couple friends of mine who were great and they were very helpful and and i went to this tackle shop one day and i went to go buy this rod that i was looking for it was called a rec series rod it was a certain tackle manufacturer made it was called a rec series rod and i'm looking at it and the guy behind the counter this is a tackle shop that's out of business now it was up in north jersey and the guy was like oh you like that rod huh i'm like yeah it's it's pretty nice and i'm looking at it and he's like oh i helped design that rod i said really yeah, so I pick it up off the rack, and it's a it's a seven and a half foot. You know, it's got a trigger grip. It's got corporate candles. It feels pretty nice. I put my reel on it. The action feels nice. I go over and ask the guy. I'm like, well, okay. I said, I noticed something a little funny with this. I, it had a 17-inch butt section on it from the tip of the butt cap to the, to the reel 
was 17 inches. I said, let me ask you something. I said, the, the butt seems a little long on this. What's the story? Why'd you make it so long? He goes, hmm, I'm a smoker. And I, you know, I smoke cigarettes. So when I'm smoking cigarettes, I'm holding the rod with one hand. I looked at him. I said, I'm sorry. I thought you were a togger. I turned around, walked away, put the rod back and left. And the point being, if you're a togger and you're holding that rod with one hand, when you do get that good hit, you can lift that rod all you want with one hand. And he's going to go into that hole and your the tip's going to go up. And then the tip's going to go down and the fish is in a hole. And then you get to say, oh, geez, I guess he got me. Well, yeah, I guess he did. Because <laughs> the thing with the thing with the pro togger, and again, that always stuck in my head. That that one particular scenario stuck in my head. And I went and I went and had a custom rod made and it was OK. It was better. The handle was better. Um, and the thing with the pro togger is it, it's got a it's got a short butt section. It's got a really nice foregrip. And when you're standing there fishing a slack line, you're not you're not standing on deck with the rod like as high as your shoulder. The rod is more like your arms are flat. Your arms are straight along your side and the rod is about as high as your waist. So picture having your left hand on your foregrip and the lines going through your, your thumb and your forefinger. And you have your left hand around the foregrip and the right hand is on the butt of the rod. Well, when you feel, you know, when you're sitting there and you feel a little tap, 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 it's no big thing. When you start to feel a little bit of a better tap, take up a little turn on the reel, put the tip down. When you feel a good womp, 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 if you, if you lift, the, lift your left hand towards your chest and push the rod butt down in front of your hip, it's a very efficient hook set. You, you move your left hand up towards your chest. You push the rod butt down in front of your hip. You let go of the rod butt. The rod butt is in your gut. The foregrip is right there in front of your chest. The reel is literally right there in front of you. You like couldn't be in any better position when it comes to get some cranks on this fish and make it happen. Uh. I mean, that's the perfect combination because with that's the, the, the way you defined it, once you get into a hook set, there's no give on that. On the, Once the, the rod tips all the way up, there's no give for the fish to pull you back into that hole. So you already magically gained three feet on them at least, right, with that hook set? Well, pro togger, seven foot, ten inches. So by the time you by the time you swing that rod and you get a few cranks on that fish, and the thing is, once you get that rod in, in front of you, you get on that reel as fast as you can. And when you, by the time you get some cranks on them, you have a little bit of time there where the fish doesn't really know he's in trouble. Mm -hmm. So if you swing that rod, get it locked in in front of you, get some cranks on them. By the time he turns and starts swimming towards the bottom, you've got your rod up. It's in a very powerful position. You're tight on the line. And when that fish starts dogging towards the bottom, all you have to do is hold them there until he settles down a little bit as soon as he decides to stop turning for the bottom as soon as he turns turns left instead of right you can get a few more cranks on him and then once you get a few more cranks on him and you get him coming your way just a little bit once you get him like i think when you swing that rod i think you've got him about 10 feet off the bottom just by swinging the rod 
when you get a few cranks on him, you're, you probably got him 15 feet off the bottom before he ever knows what happens. Pretty quickly after that, you can move your rod into a more comfortable position, lower it to a horizontal position and put the rod butt under your arm and, and fight them normally, keeping the rod in a very horizontal position. All the power from that rod is in the center of the rod and the butt of the rod. So you no longer want to keep it up high. You want to keep all that reserve power going because the fish is going to start dogging. You know, he's going to start trying to swim head down towards the wreck. And he's got that big broom tail pulsating violently. But that's really what you feel when that fish is dogging and you look at that rod and that rod's going boom, 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 boom. That's actually, it's not the tail hitting the line. It's actually the tail moving that fish through the water. So, you know, once he, once you get him to that position where you can get that rod under your arm, you can, you just need to kind of slow down. Don't put any giant stresses on your tackle, bring them up nice and slowly and just kind of control that situation. You know what I mean? Yeah, definitely. That's, that's some, some pretty good advice. You know, most guys that are newer to talking, like they'll, especially with the big fish, you'll see them right They'll They'll hook set and they'll, they'll drop the rod crank and then lift. Like they'll do that whole pump and crank thing, which is good for some species, but for like tog fluke and all that, all that does is give them a better opportunity to, uh, pop off the line right yeah well yeah i mean you have a 10 ounce sinker eight inches away from the tog's nose so if you start pumping it up and down the sinker is moving up and down changing the angle of the pull out of the fish's face that doesn't sound like a disaster waiting to happen does it no definitely it's the hook is just going <laughs> to enlarge itself and just walk right out you know what it's not like you're catching it's not like you're catching stripers in the surf on a fly rod you don't need to pump that thing no. pumping it will will cause you to lose fish absolutely positively but yeah like you said while there are guys you know we all know guys that break off big fish we mm -hmm. know guys that catch big fish that they have a fish on and their line pops oh my leader broke up oh, my rigging broke my knot broke we know other guys too that i watch them they get a bite they pick the rod up they got the fish on then they lower the rod to put the rod under their arm and start reeling when they lowered the rod, the fish swam into the hole. Mm -hmm. What am I missing? It's like sometimes you need to kind of microanalyze exactly what's happening and just looking for a very efficient way to end up with a positive result. And that, that efficient hook set that I'm talking about, it's very easy. It's very smooth. Um, it just so happens the pro togger is perfect for it because of the balance and, and the handle. And I'm not saying that that rod is the only rod that's going to do that. It's just a habit that I got into as I started doing this more and more. And I realized how important it is to fish a slack line, not to bounce your sinker on the bottom because the guy, you know, talking about picking guys for your crew. I had a guy on my crew. I had out a few times. He fishes really, really tight. He doesn't fish a slack line and he, and he doesn't seem to be able to evolve through it on days when it's rough. He really struggles bouncing his sinker up and down on the bottom. Now it just so happened this year, we had a lot of striped bass around mm -hmm. uh, when there's a lot of striped bass around. There's a lot of dogfish around. Oh yeah. Those guys. If you can flip your crab out and get it to settle on the bottom and not get bit by a dogfish, maybe you have a chance to let the blackfish find it. But if you bounce that sinker a couple times, that dogfish is going to be over there eating that crab because you're moving it and he's going to eat it. 
uh, you know, same thing with glow beads. A lot of guys up north, they love glow beads. Mm -hmm. Glow beads are fine, bro. But when there's dogfish around and you're catching one dogfish and another dogfish and another dogfish, you're keeping the school of dogfish under our boat, which is keeping the blackfish hunkered down in the wreck because they don't want to get eaten and harassed by the dogfish or the stripers. I mean, stripers do the same thing, but stripers kind of come in waves where you can watch your machine and watch a school of bass coming towards you. And you can literally see the, you could see the tog go back into the wreck as the bass pass by and the bass are gone 10, 15 minutes later, the tog come out and they're feeding again, but they don't really enjoy that kind of competition. Maybe they don't like, you know, getting eaten. I mean, definitely not. Who, who likes to get eaten, right? Especially if you're a tog. <laughs> I mean, you don't live too much from your home, but like you're, 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 you're constantly poking your head out to look around, making sure there's no dogfish around, there's no stripers right. or anything that's going to eat you. I, I mean, I'd be cautious too if anything that big came by. Sure. I mean, you know, how many times are you trolling and you're reeling up a 30 pound bass and there's half a dozen dogfish nipping at its tail? Mm -hmm. Or you're, you or, know, those or, things are going to nip at those blackfish or anything else that, that they can get in their mouth. Yeah, dogfish are horrendous. <laughs> They're just horrendous. Oh. And this way, if you can, if you cannot attract them, you know, if you cannot attract them and let them go by, and like I said, having a guy in the crew that bounces his sinker a lot, it's an unnatural sound. It's an unnatural vibration on the bottom, and but you know that alone. I mean, bouncing a sinker is bad to de develop a blackfish bite. I know mm. if I have a guy bouncing a sinker and he's next to me. I'm really going to seriously, I'm going to want to try to get on the other side of the boat. I really want to get away from that dude. I want to cast up front. I want to do something, but I really don't want to be near that guy because that guy bouncing that sinker can actually hurt the bite for, for that whole side of the boat for a, a small charter boat. I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. Totally understood. Definitely, definitely guys. That's another hidden secret. Don't bounce your sinkers. Just, just figure out how the way the boat works, the boat rocks, and keep your sinker as flat as possible on the bottom and don't lift it. Um, so, Frank, what if don't I... Don't be a what, bouncer. Don't be a bouncer. What if I was to call you tomorrow to hop on the boat and go tog fishing? What is your current setup right now? Like your go-tos? My current setup is a Century Pro Togger rod, um, 7 foot, 10 inches, things absolutely beastly. Um, Saltiga, Daiwa Saltiga 15 reel. Okay. Um, the 15 reel is like the perfect size. I put about, I put about 20 yards of 30 pound braided Dacron line on it as backing. And that's a perfect amount to let me put 150 yards of 65 pound Daiwa J braid multicolor line on there. So with that little bit of backing, it fills it up perfect. I use 150 yards on each of my rods because I have two rods that are exactly identical that I'm fishing throughout the day. During the course, I'll, I'll fish through April. And then when April is done, I'll run 150 yards off of one reel. I'll take that reel, tie the line from the other reel on. So I'll put the old line on the bottom and put the new line on the top. Then I'll put the other line back on the other reel. So I reverse it. If you think about it, 150 yards of line, it's 450 feet of line. Mm -hmm. I don't really use that much. I trim off like three feet for every trip. I, I rarely break off, but you rarely fish. I mean, I think one time I fished for blackfish in water that was like 150 foot deep. You got 450 foot of line. It can damn well handle 
a spring season and a fall season, and then I'll put new stuff on, you know? Yeah, there you go, guys. But that's why I set them up like that. There you go, guys. A little money-saving trick from Frank right there. Just flip your lines. I mean, realistically, he's not, he's not wrong. You're thinking 150 yards. He's at about 450 feet. Deepest your fishing is 150 feet. So you got another 300 feet unused line. Why, th- why throw it away when you just flip it, right? Yeah, I mean, I you know, I I put it new in the new in April. At the end of April, I flip it, and uh, maybe I get a couple drum fish trips on them or something like that. And then I flip them over for the fall blackfish season. And then the end of the fall blackfish season, I throw it out and put new line on again. Yeah. So this way, I'm ready. So we're, we're speaking of rods, and you mentioned this rod already multiple times just in the few, past uh, few minutes. Uh, but from what I've read and heard you had a very big hand in building one of the best known tog rods in the togging community. Let's really talk about this rod, like the way it was designed and how did you come up with that concept? Well, one of the nicest things with working with a company like Century is Century is a rod company from the UK. They build rods in small batches. So they don't build like a hundred thousand of a certain blank. Like Ryan White from Hatteras Jacks, he's the U.S. importer. I worked with Ryan to design the Pro Talker, and he started out. He sent me this one. He sent me this one blank that he considered a good tog blank. A couple things I didn't like too much about it, and one of the coolest things was we were able to break down that that rod by the length. Like we were able to go twelve inches from the tip and then 12 inches further back from the tip. And I was able to say, I want to make the tip 10% heavier. And this next section, I want to make 10% lighter. And we were good with that. And then we wanted to add the Textream Cody to make it more sensitive and a little stiffer. Once we had that blank exactly where we want it, we started working on the handle layout, which is something that I had done years in the past and i and i developed this idea called the efficient hook set which i was describing earlier but some of the smallest details in the pro togger are like it has a it has a a rubber a rubber gimbal gimbal butt cap on the rear it has a split rear seat a split rear handle which is perfect i like the way it sits between my hands but that section of the rod blank between the two split sections is actually covered with this nice smooth japanese shrink wrap and it's not so much to keep it warm or keep it this or keep it that. When it's in the rod holder in these boats and the rod moves around a little bit, it actually protects the blank from the bottom of the aluminum tube on these rod, on these, um, rod holders. It has a big two-finger trigger grip, Fuji trigger grip uh, reel seat, which I prefer. Um, like the foam guides, I like the foam, the foam uh, handles too, I like. Took me a little while, but they aren't as cold and they don't get as slippery as the cork when they get wet and they got crab guts on them. So again, it all it all goes to a really nice setup for what I'm trying to do. Usually when you're togging, a lot of times throughout the day, you will be flipping up towards the bow lines or you will be flipping away from the boat. And having that big trigger grip handle is just something that I really prefer. It has a nice big foregrip on it. Uh, titanium guides, which if I were to take these guides and put them in your hand, you really can't even perceive any weight there. They're so little. They weigh so little that they make the rod balance perfectly. Uh, The fully assembled rod without the reel, the rod weighs 9.6 ounces. 
for a legit tog stick, 9.6 ounces, I think is ridiculous. With the reel, it weighs like a pound and a half. Um, we did screw up a little bit, though, and, and I kind of want to address this because I don't want people to get the wrong idea. Um, I don't make one penny from Century. I don't do this for the money. I do it to help guys get better tackle and to help guys catch better fish. I've been sharing information for a long time. I don't need to, I don't need to get, you know, a check from Century Rods every month for a couple dollars. I'd rather have a relationship with Century Rods that's ongoing for years so I can continue with this. And the thing that it kind of came about when we were working on the rod, when we finally got it right, I told Ryan White from Century, I said, you know, Ryan, I've had this kind of name in my head for a while and I've been hanging on to it for a long time. And I want to let you know what you think about it, but feel free if you don't like the name. He goes, what are you talking about? I said, let's come up with a name for this rod. I said, what do you think of Pro Togger? Well, he loved the name. The name was awesome. Where we screwed up was we actually, instead of naming the blank, like 1031451, we actually, he actually named the blank Pro Togger. <laughs> so now when somebody, when a rod builder buys a Century Pro Togger blank, he can throw, you know, 50 cent Alkanite guides on it some cheap handle his grandmom came up with and he's selling it for a hundred dollars less than a century pro talker and bro like it ain't the same you know <laughs> you know the quality components that are on here kind of speak for themselves but that's why the the solution to that was to differentiate the century factory build from other people building on a pro talker blank the solution was to now call the century factory build frank mahalik's pro talker so it didn't happen due to ego or my planning. It just happened that way to differentiate our superior product from other people who were imitating it, selling it at a cheaper price and claiming it was the same thing. Totally understood what you guys did there. So there's like the Century Togger, Pro Togger. And then there's, I would just nickname it like the Counterfeit pro togger but it's still the century blank it's just not built with the same quality products as the the uh the century built right right and bro i mean don't take this the wrong way i know some rod builders that i oh my god like they make the prettiest rods and they make the nicest rods and i know some of these guys that are toggers and they're legit big fish guys you know what if those guys use a century pro togger blank I would be nothing but honored. Mm -hmm. But I also know there's other guys that are looking to save a couple dollars, looking to get an extra couple sales. And if they sell you that rod that doesn't balance right, and when you're trying to fish a, an eight foot rod, you know, seven foot, 10 inches, the pro togger is when you're trying to fish that seven foot, 10 inch rod to fish in a slack line and the guides are heavy and it's not balancing right now, the tip's going down all the day. Mm -hmm. uh, it's kind of going to get on your nerves. You know, you're not getting the whole, you're not getting the, the whole thing. It's not really the way we wanted it to be. <clears throat> Definitely. I mean, like I said, you built it seven ten for a reason. If you wanted to build it be eight feet, you would have built the eight feet, but it's seven ten for a reason because of the weight and the distribution of the, the certain guides you guys have set and the real seat and the butt. So, I mean, this, like I said, this, this rod is designed for exactly what it was made for. You know what I mean? For a person that, been talking well, 710, 710 turned out perfect too because we're able to ship it easier that way uh yeah shipping's one of those big big things with rods right for sure 
All right. So we got our rod, our reels. Let's, we're going to step up to the terminal tackle. Now this, sometimes I feel this is kind of the guts, a big portion of the guts of the, uh, the whole setup anyway, because you, this is where, this is where everything's tested to its full capacity with your terminal tackle. Uh, so lines, uh, mono over braid, braid over mono. Uh, what's your recommended strength for uh, what this type of fishing? And do we do a top shot, mono or floral? Let's go through the whole thing. Yeah, I use I use 50, 50 pound braid or 65 pound braid. I actually think 65 is a little bit overkill. I'm actually going to drop down the 50 Daiwa J braid um, when, I, when I get the opportunity. When I can get the right line in the multicolor, I will do that. I like the multicolor because as you flip to the bottom, you can you can visually stay in tune with what color is coming off. You know when your sinker is going to hit bottom. So if you, if you flip your sinker in and it goes orange, white, green, yellow, and you know when it hits purple, you're at the bottom. Some days it's really cold and you kind of have your arms tucked up inside your sleeves and you flip it out and it's like, okay, it's getting your purple. And then you stick your thumb on it and you're right at the bottom. So it's one of those things. It also helps me too. I do really like when I'm fishing a slack line, when I do detect a bite, I find myself line watching where I'm actually intensely focused on the line where it breaks through the film of the water. And a lot of times you can visually see the hit on the line before you can feel it in your hands and let it register in your head. Yeah. So just it's just another habit, you know, one of those bad habits I got into. But um, from the line, I would go to a, I would use a, a Yucatan knot and I would go to 60 pound Andy pink monofilament. I would make that top shot about 20, 24 feet long. The bottom, what I do is I would tie that Yucatan on there. I would pull it up into the reel and I would want to get about four or five wraps around the reel. Mm -hmm. Then from the rod tip, I want to take about another, another 10 feet of line out. And I want to double up the bottom, say two feet or so. And this is where the Belmar rig, this part's called the Belmar rig. If you take that bottom line to double it up, you can do, um, it, it's called a spider hitch, but a normal spider hitch has like six or eight turns. If you just, if you take that double line up there where the end of the line meets your main line and your loop is say to your, to your right, take those two lines, wrap them around your index finger and your middle finger on your left hand and pinch it with your thumb. And so that's like a one inch wide loop. And then wrap it around your middle finger one time, and it makes a smaller loop. Take your line, pass it through, and, and, you, and you've created a big loop there in your line. Take your sinker, attach it, attach it through the loop. Make sure your two legs are nice and straight there. And then you're going to tie your rig in. And the rigs I usually have, I usually use slider rigs and sweetheart rigs. They're tied on 60-pound 60 pound tsunami fluorocarbon. It's an excellent fluorocarbon. It's a Japanese product. It's very hard finish. It's not a very soft fluoro. It's a very, very stiff, hard fluoro. Mm -hmm. And I use owner cutting point five aught. Um, yeah, owner cutting point octopus five aught SSW hooks, number 5311 151. But if you take that, if you tie that leader up, you know, if you take that hook and snell it on there about eight inches long and you drop another hook down it, that's the, 
that's the slider or the sweetheart, depending on how you turn it. And if you tie a perfection loop in the end, you can actually tie that in just above the sinker in your double line. So the way you're creating the Belmar rig is you're taking your rigged hook and you're tying it right into the double line. So if you basically take your sinker and come up four fingers with, you're coming up about three inches above it and you fold those double lines over and you put those two double folded double lines through the hook on the top of your hooked rig. And then you take your hooks and pass them through that line, through that loop and it comes out. That's actually called a half cat's paw. If you take your sinker and your double line, now they're both double and you just do two overhand knots around that half cat's paw, pull it nice and tight. It locks the leadered hook in. If it's a little bit off center, if it doesn't stick out right, you can actually grab it and pull it and it'll roll that knot and let it lock in so that your leadered hook sticks right out away from your doubled line. It sounds a hell of a lot harder than it is. I apologize for the awkward explanation. I know there's a lot going on, but if I see you at a show or on a boat, I'll be glad to show you. But I will tell you that this Belmar rig, tying your leadered hook into the double line adds a lot of shock absorption. It's a lot of absorption to the knot. It's a very, very durable big fish method of securing these knots together. Well, I mean, from an audio standpoint, that sounds like a big, big can of worms for me. And I'm sitting here listening, but I mean, the way, the way you can edit it, if you want, bro. No, definitely not. I'm not editing any of this. They're going to listen to it um, and they're going to Google it. They're going to find it, but it's the best painful. way to, but the best way to do this is uh, definitely look for Frank at one of the seminars. He taught pros. Or even if you see him on one of the boats or uh, the Big Mohawk, uh, Peyton, Peyton teaches this. If you ever fish on the Big Mohawk, talk to Peyton, mm -hmm. the mate on there. He, he'll show Absolutely. you how to run it. Or any of the captains that are north. I don't know about the captains that run the, the southern boats. I don't really hop on them rarely. But I know for a fact that the northern boats or the central boats, however we want to, however we want to dictate New Jersey, the uh, yeah, like the Big Mohawk, uh, the White Crab, like Steve and them over there, those guys. Uh, Jerry knows it. Talk to any of those captains or any of the mates. They'll definitely show you the, the Belmore rig and how to tie it. Because, I mean, it sounds like a lot, but once you get the hang of it, it's, it's a breeze. But the funky thing is I actually had to confirm with Jerry a couple years ago that the, the Belmore the rig is not a leadered hook. The Belmore rig is the way you tie the leadered hook into your main line. Mm -hmm. So that's the Belmar rig. The Belmar, it's not like a hooked rig. It's a way of tying everything together. So. Well, that, that perfectly explains it. Now, I always wonder, so since it's called the Belmar rig, right, did this rig or, or the, the way it's set up, did it originally from the, the Belmar area, you know, where all the party boats are? The first time I ever saw it, I saw it on the old Mohawk back in around like 19... I'd say 85-ish or so, mm -hmm. and it was called the Belmar rig then. Now, it's the Belmar rig. If you, you know, you can adjust the length of those double, that double line. If you're fishing open bottom, you can make that double line maybe only like a foot long. Mm -hmm. But if you're, if you're, if Jerry has you parked on top of a barge and you dropped at a bottom and he says, move around, find a hole, 
and you and you kind of drag your sinker and all of a sudden it goes whoop and you're going down like another 10 or 12 feet mm-hmm. you might want to grab your other usually when i rig these rods up i'll tie one of them with like a two foot double line section and i'll tie another one with like a four foot line section and if jerry says we're going to a big fish spot check your leaders that's kind of clue to hey get big fish ready and i'll use that double line to my advantage that when i do feel it dropping into a hole number one when i feel it dropping into a hole i start lowering my rod tip all the way to the water and i come tight on my reel Mm -hmm. and when it hits the bottom i immediately lock up and i am like loaded and just ready to go because usually when it goes into the bottom of a hole like that you're going to get pounced on right away hope of getting them out is you know, womp, womp, and it's off to the races, man. Swing for the fences and try to get him out of there before he gets you. Yeah, definitely. It's, you know, those big guys are sitting in the holes and how long they've been sitting there. Well, for a free meal that's just dropping to hold him, he's not going to wait. It doesn't happen by accident. You know, if you're, oh, geez, I'm in a hole. Oh, let me get to the bottom. If it's falling to the bottom and if your rod's like at like the 10 o'clock position in the air, you've mm-hmm. got a little slack in your line and then you, you lock up, and the fish hits you, your yeah. shot's over. Yeah, he's got he's he's got you. So, mm-hmm. uh, see. and you lost got? your opportunity. That might have been your one chance for the day at a big fish. Mm-hmm. That was the one. Uh, so, big discussion here. Uh, everyone talks about it, and I always want to. I always discuss this with everyone. Greens or whites? When and where? And the best way? Do you fish them whole? Do you cut them? Like what? Green what's... crab in green mm-hmm. crabs are inshore they're just fine. Green crabs inshore all the time within a couple miles from the beaches all the time. Um, Early in the fall season, I'll absolutely use green crabs. And sometimes they chew on them things just fine. Um, Sometimes in the springtime, we move into green crabs with like a little piece of clam on top of it. And like the clam attracts them and then they start chewing on the crab and they eat it really good. Um, But green crabs, I'll use more inshore early in the fall season. Once it turns into December and we start pushing off the rock piles and we start pushing more onto the wrecks, I'll start using the white crabs more regularly. Okay. Um, any alter- any other alternative baits? Because I've heard guys use other stuff too. Um, anything? Cook that shrimp. Use- Cook shrimp. Cook shrimp is a springtime thing. And yeah, I don't know why they eat it. I don't know if it's because of the orange color that the shrimp take on sometimes but they will eat frozen cooked whole shrimp, um, you know, with the shell off. It's like you're ready to dip them in cocktail sauce and they right. eat that. And if you I don't, don't catch, if you don't, crazy. if you, if you don't fish all your bait, you just go buy cocktail sauce on the way home. <laughs> it's crazy, but they do. I don't know why they do, but sometimes they get into that stuff. Uh, hermit crabs. I heard hermit crabs are pretty good for them, right? If you hermit can find crabs them. are very good, but they are like the bane of my existence. <laughs> when you drop a hermit crab to the bottom, you get tap and you're done. He's gone. You're done. If you didn't swing and get him, you're done. So I, I really try not to use hermit crabs because they keep me up at night. Yeah, that's like, that's like us fishing inshore with like sand fleas. You know, you hook them on. It's a one hit deal. If you miss yeah. that hit, it's over. For sure. Same right, so, thing. Brutal though, man. Brutal. Yeah. So, uh, so here comes kind of like the important discussion. This is where this sets the, uh, the pros from the amateurs, right? So now it's rail time. So we're sitting at the rail. You know, we got all the perfect gear that you described a little earlier, tackle, terminal, bait, everything's good. 
captain screams out from the, from the, the wheelhouse lines down so uh you drop your first bait down uh what's running through your mind you know and what are what, what are anglers expecting and what should they be thinking about well a lot of times when you get onto a spot you have to kind of build the life where you might see bait you might see bites right away and if you're mm-hmm. looking around the boat and guys are getting bites that's great um, stay, I usually stay put. I usually drop straight down right away. I don't really start moving around until I see what's down there. Okay. Um, if I'm down there and I'm really not getting bit, but guys are all getting bit on the, say I'm at the, say I'm at right at midships and the guys at, at the bow are getting bit. Um, maybe I'll flip towards the bow a little bit. I mean, I'm not going to flip in front of the other angler, but I'll flip away from the boat, but I'll flip up towards the bow to see if I can kind of get closer to the structure that they're fishing. But that's not right away. I mean, I'll give Mm -hmm. it like 10 minutes where I'm at or so to see if I can start to develop bites because a lot of times it does take those fish a little bit of time to realize there's food there and to get them a little bit excited so that they want to start to chew. And eventually, if you're lucky, I mean, th- those fish will be chewing their faces off, but it might never get to that point. You might just have to have to pick through a picky bite during the whole day. Yeah, I mean, um, a lot of anglers don't understand that. And you mentioned just a few minutes ago, uh, what build, what is this thing called building the bite? Like they'll they'll drop they'll drop a crab down. They won't get a bite for like I don't know two three minutes instantly. They'll they'll pick up their rod and they'll move to another spot, drop it down. Nothing there. Don't pick it up. They'll, they'll really walk around the whole boat like twice before they find a spot they want to stay. Like like how long do you give given like you said about ten minutes? Do you give and take to try to build that bite before you say you know what the bite's not going to build here? Pick up and move. The first thing you got to realize is every time you pick up, you you should be putting on new crab. Mm-hmm. because the, the guts get chewed out of the crab by their burgals or from the black fish bites. And that's why sometimes I'll choose to fish smaller whole crabs and I'll just take them, you know, I'll, I'll maybe put like one, maybe I'll get like a nice two inch crab and hook them on a sweetheart rig just perfectly. You know, maybe I'll trim off the claw and the next couple, the next couple flippers so I can put those hooks in there real nice and drop it on the deck and maybe, maybe even crush it a little bit. Like, you know, that little part in front of the heel on your boot where it kind of goes up, there's like a little space. Well, you know, they don't make that for any other reason other than it just crushes crabs perfectly. (laughs) It lets you crush them just a little bit, but it doesn't pulverize them. Oh yeah. Um, I've I've had plenty of times I try to just gently tap the crab, but no, I end up turning into like a mush. Yeah, yeah. And, um, you know, that, that's just something that I do. And that'll let me tend to get that crab to the bottom and it'll, it'll survive a couple pecks before it just gets pulverized. But again, I'm usually being more patient. I'm going to drop it to the bottom and I feel tap, 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 tap. I'm not ready to swing on that. I'm waiting for that, for that better hit for that good tug. Um, and you do have to be patient. You know, if you are building the life, use like small halves of the green crab throw it out there you get the tick 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 all done you're not getting any more hits pull it in put new crab on throw it out again tick 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 no more hits you might have to do that four or five or six times before all of a sudden one of those ticks will be followed by a good tug and all of a sudden you'll get the fish more active and they will start uh start feeding more aggressively on your little spot you might have six or eight fish on a little spot over there that, you know, these fish are competitive and they look over and they feel the vibrations in the water of what's going on over there. And usually they come over there and they check it out. And 
very rarely will you sometimes you don't just get one fish i mean this year this year was kind of like that it was so weird you would get like one fish and then that would be it or mm -hmm. maybe you'd go to a new wreck and you'd get three or four keepers off of it and, and that would be it it was it was kind of a kind of a crazy year for black fishing especially up north yeah definitely i like i felt that the uh, this year up north like the opening day i went out and yeah we crushed them you know like easily limited out we threw back way so many keepers because we were already hit our limit. And then the next few weeks or two, we went out, it was like a keeper in this rock, a keeper in that pile, maybe two keepers here. Like it was, it was, it was just weird, but I mean, like I said, it was a weird one this year. Um, but this, you mentioned this earlier and this, this has always intrigued me reading and then like checking out your seminars and your articles. But um, <clears throat> I've always, for me, black fishing, I've always learned, from what I've seen is fishing a tight line, but then you totally blew my mind when you were saying fishing a slack line. Like, I mean, I mean, break down what is actually fishing a slack line. Well, fishing a slack line means um, picture, picture you're standing at the rail, you're, mm -hmm. you drop your line, you drop your, you drop your sinker into the water. And instead of, instead of holding your rod up at your chest and your rod tip is down at say, say a four o'clock position and you roll up your line and you're nice and tight, but you're not even getting bit. Mm -hmm. And then, and then when the boat moves, you're, you know, you're forced to lift your sinker and bounce it on the bottom, which means you're probably not going to get bit. So if you can just leave, let it go to the bottom, leave it in a little bit of a slack, lower your rear hand on your rear butt so that your rod is horizontal or maybe even up a little bit, maybe your rods up at like the 10 o'clock position, your rod tip and, and picture you're holding your rod, like with your arms extended, your arms are just down. You're relaxed. You're, you're just chilling. You got a little bit of slack in your line. It's taunt, but it's not tight and you can feel everything. Now, when you get a little tick, tick, okay. Now move your rod down to that four o'clock, move your tip to the four o'clock position Come tight on your line. Now, when you get a good tug, 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 your right hand pushes the butt down, the tip goes up in the air, and it's off to the races. All right. So, I mean, the idea of fishing a slack line, it definitely is a skill that requires practice. Some, some practice. And it's not easy to do it. You know, it's easy to do when there's offshore when there's no current. Also, sometimes you need, sometimes having a little bow in your line. Is, is helpful that really fishing, fishing a loose line until you feel that tap, tap, and then you come tight on it. A lot of times it, it's helpful, especially with new black fishermen. I've been out with guys where they, you know, they're swinging and missing and swinging and missing and swinging and missing. And I was talking to, I was talking to Tom Daffin the other day, and we were talking about that he had a guy one time, he told him, look, when you come back here next week, I want you to have 50 pound mono on this rod rod reel everything great 50 pound mono he came back with 50 pound mono by doing that it helped the angler not feel every little tiny bite mm -hmm. when you fish mono you can't even feel those little bites so he didn't constantly go through sensory overload when he did feel the bite it's usually the right bite to swing on so he you know sometimes braid is is a double-edged sword because as nice as it is to not to have it so not have so much stretch and stretch and to transmit the bites 
you also have to be able to differentiate between the picky picky bites and the right bite that you want to swing on. And it's, mm -hmm. it's very, very hard to explain. And it, it does take some time. Okay. Yeah. That was my, that was just kind of something that kind of intrigued me because when you, when you say fishing slack line, what runs through my mind is, all right, I'm fishing it sinker sitting on the bottom and I'm leaving pretty much a decent sized bow in my line. But I mean, the way you describe it, it's, it's slack, but it's not like slack enough that it's too big of a bow that you'll miss every bite that comes. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. It's, it's taunt, it's taunt, but it's not tight. Okay. If you're, if the boat's moving up and as the boat goes, as the boat goes down, mm -hmm. your rod tip should move up. When the boat goes up, your rod tip should move down. You should almost be pivoting the rod up and down to compensate for the boat moving on the swell. And that way you're constantly on a taunt line. And this will become very, it will become second nature in not too long of a period of time. Gotcha. All right, cool. That's something I'm going to definitely have to practice. <clears throat> and it's not like you can, you know, if you see toggers out there and they're all tensed up and they're mm -hmm. real tight and they're waiting yeah. for that bite all day long. Yeah. It's like, bro, relax. <laughs> you might get a bite in like an hour. Relax. Look, give them. And that's the idea with fishing a, a decent sized chunk of bait. He's not going to come over to a three inch white crab that I stepped on with my shoe and he's going to give it one pick. And that's all he, that's all I got. I got enough bait there for, three or four good womps, you know? <laughs> so once he gets it in his mouth, you have ample time to get the rod tip down, come tight on it and swing. Yeah. All right, so let's just go run through the scenario and just to, just to see. Uh, so you've been standing at the rail, freezing cold. I can't feel my fingers, legs, feet, whatever it may be. For three hours, not a tick, but then you get that right bite. Like, you know, it's the one, that thump. Like, how are we going setting this hook? And what is your, your, what is the best way to potentially put this Togzilla and beat him in the very first 10 feet? The efficient hook set. Um, come, come tight on the, come tight on the line with your rod tip down. When you feel that boom, boom, maybe it's the third or the fourth one, your, your left hand should be pulled towards your chest. Your right hand should be pushed down as far as your right arm should be pushed down as far as it could be. The rod butt will now be in front of your hip. You can immediately put your right hand or left hand on the real handle and turn crank like hell until that fish stops you. And if you get a good one, he'll stop you, but you'll be able to budge that fish off the bottom and have an excellent chance of actually landing that fish. Mm -hmm. At so that point, Good. You hang on to them for a little bit. You work them up as much as you can. You just hang on to them while he's, while he's figures out he's in trouble and he's starting to dart towards the bottom. <clears throat> just hang on. Don't keep reeling. Don't start pumping. Keep that, keep that rod up until that fish makes a turn and you can get a few more cranks on them. When you get four or five or six cranks on them, I let the rod, the rod butt slip up under my right arm. My left hand still on the foregrip. I'm working the reel in a very slow, controlled manner. You don't have to, you already got them off the bottom. Now what you have to do is don't break your shit. Don't break your knots. Don't give the fish a chance to get away. Just calm down, slow down, work the fish up nice and slowly. 
when you have a good fish on, everybody on the boat will know that you have a good fish on. The mate will know you have a good fish on. He'll come and stand beside you with the net. If the mate is standing on my right side with the net, I'm starting to look now. I'll start to look for color. When I start to see color, when the mate's on my right, I'm going to move my rod tip towards the left. I'm going to move it opposite where the mate is. I'm going to keep reeling up until the fish is maybe, I'm being really careful never to let this fish break the surface of the water because that's how a lot of good fish are lost. And remember, in the, in the wintertime, the water is very, very clear. So I'll wait till the fish is maybe two feet from the surface, maybe three feet from the surface, four feet from the surface. But I'll, as I'm reeling them over, as I'm reeling them up, I'm swinging my rod tip from my left to right. So it makes the fish swim in the direction where the mate is waiting with the net. So this way, as the fish comes up towards the surface, the, the, the fish is swimming towards the mate and the mate can just direct his head right into the net. Once the mate has the fish in the net, he's pulling it up. I move my rod tip directly up. I, I free spool my reel and just take a minute and enjoy the moment. That's, that's, that's incredible advice right there. That's literally a scenario that you can just walk right through. And he walked you guys right through that whole scenario of fighting that big fish. Now you got that, you know, you get that double digit monster on the deck. Like what's the best way to handle this fish for photos and how do we like effectively release this fish? Well, if the, if the angler chooses to do so, you know, cause you know, as our podcast, we're very conservationist, but now you always have the right, but uh, for us, it's like, how do we safely handle this fish for a photo and how do we safely release it? Well, we usually have a live well, a saltwater live well on the boat, or we have a tote filled with salt water on the deck. So we'll unhook the fish kind of quickly and put them in the tote of salt water to let them, to let them get recovered a little bit. Sometimes they fight so, so difficult that sometimes they kind of kill themselves from fighting so hard. But we put them in the live well or we put them in the tote for a couple minutes. That gives us a chance to kind of get our wits about ourselves, too. You know, I mean, one guy's holding a fishing rod and a guy, everybody's all excited and nets everywhere. It gives us a chance to kind of calm down, get somebody who's going to take a couple pictures. Usually the, usually the angler will pick the fish up, get a couple pictures, we'll put it back. The one thing I was speaking about with a captain lately is we want to make sure we release our fish over eight pounds. But what we're going to do is we're actually going to use like a reusable bag you can get from a supermarket. It's kind of like a plastic, uh, it's like a solid plastic net covered kind of bag. It's a pretty heavy like shopping bag. It's a reusable shopping bag. We can take the fish, put it in there. We have a couple holes to let the water drain out and we can hang that from the scale. So we don't have to worry about dropping the fish or the fish falling off the scale we don't want to put the scale up inside the gill rakers. So it's kind of a quick way for us to carefully get a good weight on the fish. We can put them back in the water for another breather, get ready for some pictures. Let's take some more pictures. On my charters too, another thing we're trying to do, like I said, we're, we're releasing the fish over eight pounds. Double digit fish aren't so great to eat. Um, once you've caught a couple of them, you know, it, it's a really, really a cool thing to, to, memorialize it with some pictures uh if you do get a record fish well we're probably going to be keeping that bugger but you know th th that's a story for a little later on i think yeah most definitely um so i mean like this like we guys uh, the uh, fishery we're going to talk about the fishery in a minute but uh 
know, safe, safely handle your fish like any other fish. Avoid the gills. Don't touch the gills. You don't need to stick your finger up their gills. Um, handle them, man, manual handling with your hands as less as possible if you can. And uh, always give them time to relax and revive themselves before you actually set them off. Some, some fish you'll drop them in and they'll go belly up. You know, then the point of you trying to save him was impractical because it didn't help them. Um, but uh, so... So this is a touchy subject with everyone, even if we talk to, uh, but we always discuss it because it is, it is very a conservation of podcasts. Uh, uh, we would love to hear your opinion on the health of the fishery and, you know, um, and also your opinion on releasing big fish. Well, releasing the big fish, I think one of the best things I've seen done, something Jerry does, Jerry Pastorino on the fishmonger, he actually has like a small a small garbage can that's maybe like 24 inches tall. It's like one of those gray garbage cans mm -hmm. you'll get from Home Depot. Yeah. And he'll fill it with salt water and he'll actually take a big fish that maybe it like, maybe it kind of, you know, maybe it didn't blew it, blow its intestines out because that's yeah. a tough situation, but maybe yeah. it blew its air bladder out. Jerry will take it. That trash can's small enough that that fish will go into that trash can, head down and it will, the trash can itself will orient the fish so its tail's out of the water. Sometimes that fish will go in there and he's not in too good a shape. And after 10 or 15 minutes of him being in there with his head down and breathing this water, all of a sudden that tail starts going and you're like, oh boy, I guess he's ready to go then. And, and then you can take him and let him go. Um, the overall health of the fishery, this fishery has really been taking a beating over the years as togging becomes more in vogue. Um, the fish do grow slow. They grow roughly at a rate of about a pound per year off of like South Jersey, Delaware, Virginia. They grow at about a pound a year. Up off of Massachusetts, they grow at like three quarters of a pound a year. So it's, it's easy to see how our fish grow a lot faster down here than they do up there. They're all um, very delicate. Even the small ones, I try to let them go. Um, I'm, I'm very, very much trying to let all the females go on this year's charters. Anything we can do to make a difference to help these fish recoup and recover, including let, letting the big ones go, we do. Now, if you get a record fish, I don't expect you to let it go. I, I think you'd be crazy too. But you know what? Once you get a couple big ones, you know, you got a nice 15 pounder under your belt, you get another 14 pounder. It's kind of a good, it's a good position. If, if that guy will swim off, it's really a good feeling to let him swim. So, but I think it, it is, it is really um, susceptible to pressure. Spot lock guys have really, it, it's so easy for them to go out on a nice day and go out and hit 10 different spots. And the times that if we're swinging a couple hit hooks, mm -hmm. we could only hit four and they hit 10. Um, you know, it's easy. It, it's, it's almost an unfair advantage because it takes that skill set out of it. Like I said, it, it's the kind of thing that everybody is doing it now. But stripers had a really good year this year when the stripers come back strong and they were they were particularly good in South Jersey. They stayed tight to Barnegat this year. Mm -hmm. LBI, Brigantine, Ventnor, Margate, Longport, Wildwood, they all had fish on the beaches. All the trollers had plenty of fish inshore. We had fish under birds like we hadn't had in a long time. I think if the stripers have a couple of good years, the boaters will start targeting those bigger bass again because it's easier 
to troll mojos and catch big bass than it is to even if you're using a spot lock you know you have to get green crabs and make a big mess of your boat but you know it's just what we do i thought i thought of that during the fall this year i was like if we get a really good bounce back of striped bass like a good fall run for the next few years it's going to take a lot of pressure off the uh the togging too so it gives it gives the tug an opportunity to uh you know better their population for sure guys love i mean big bass look great in pictures you know so yeah. people do really like them a lot of guys really like i mean surf fishing for bass it's, it's kind of hard to it's hard to beat that that's one it's of hard the coolest things ever. But, the, but then there are guys that just love black fishing way too much to worry about it right like you i'm with you all right, so now I before, do my share of bass fishing too. Mm-hmm. Now, before we move on to uh, our next subject, uh, are there any memorable blackfish trips you can recall through your many trips? Now, I do want to hear the story about that uh, that Jersey State record blackfish that you witnessed, and you were actually on that boat caught on fishing fever with Tom Daffin um, by one of your good friends. So mm-hmm. let's, let's hear some of those amazing stories. Well, memorable trips. How about? When I was fishing on my old boat to miss Kim with my dad and I was on the flower rack and I caught a couple of nice big fish that day. He was pop's eyes were rolling in the back of his head because he was having trouble catching small ones. And <laughs> I caught a couple of real nice big fish. That was a, a tremendous memory, something to share with my dad. And that's, you know, something extra cool. Um, my first double digit blackfish caught on the fishmonger was 12 and three quarter pounds. Every single person stopped what they were doing, put their rod down came over, gave me a hug, shook my hand, patted me on the back. It was just the coolest thing ever, you know, and what a, what a great place to do it, to do it with Jerry there. It was, you know, just thanks so much to Jerry because between Jerry and the guys on that boat, I've learned so much by watching them and, and them just sharing so freely. It, it just, it really is a, is a tremendous asset to the fisher to the fishery, I think. Um, what else do I got here? Mm, I'll tell you what, I had some bad memories too. Well, I had a day when I was go through bad memories. Let me tell you this one, 15 degrees on the fever. I hopped on an open boat trip. If you could believe it or not, I was on Nino and Ronnie were on there with me too. And we were out there and, um, I was using an IM eight graphite rod, seven, uh, eight foot. And I was using an Abu reel because I was an Abu reel nut. I used to like to work on them and take them apart and all. Um, I caught a, you know, caught a few fish. I caught a big fish and the fish was just dogging at mid depth and the rod blew up like right at the stripper guide rod pop blew up. I grabbed my backup rod. My, the dogs are frozen in the reel. The dogs wouldn't release. Here I am. I'm on the most insane big fish bite of my life on the best boat. And my gear is like crumbling in my hands. Let me tell you something. When I got done, I called Joseph Gorski. I said, what's that reel you got? What's that line? Blah, blah, blah. By the time I got home, I spent $1,600. I was getting two custom rods made. I had two reels coming with line. I was not going to lose fish again because I was using some inadequate gear. I was just not going to do it. That's the day. That's the day you, that's that's the day you came That's the day you came up with that, that whole lingo, right? Just make sure your gear is 100% top notch before you step on a boat. For sure, man, if it's something that I can prevent, I can spend a little money 
on going on that boat. I'm, you know, I'm taking the day off from work and I'm going to go there with something that's going to cause me to not catch the fish that I'm trying to catch. That just seems ludicrous to me. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I definitely believe in controlling the controllables, everything I can do down to the knots. Everything is <coughs> meticulous, absolutely meticulous. Yeah, that's how you got to be though, because you never know when you're gonna when you're gonna one the that one's gonna be on the other end. You don't want no that's right. You got to do it in your sleep, bro. You got to yep. do it in your sleep with your eyes closed. Definitely. All right. Well, so that's two good stories, a bad story. Now let's let's hear the incredible story. Ah. All right, we're on we're on fever. We're heading out early in the morning. My friend, it's my friend Mark's trip, and he's got his buddy Sully, and I've met Sully a few times. And we're on the way out and we're on the back deck and it, it's a, it's a long ride. Um, and, and we're talking about, Sully's actually talking to me about, he was trying to find a pro togger because Mark's been using one for a while now. Sully was trying to find one in a tackle shop. He couldn't find one. He ended up buying some other rod that the guy sold him. And I'm like, okay, well, good luck with it. And we get out there and we start fishing. And this is all, you know, this, it's about maybe coming on like noon or so now. And, you know, Sully's over there and I'm like, you know, Sully, I said, if you want to try a pro togger anytime during the day, you let me know. And I told him this early in the day. In the meantime, when I go on the boat, I bring four of them. Well, two other guys are using the other two that I brought on. The other two are my personal pro toggers. I rigged them. They got my hooks on them. They're, they're my rods that if one gets stuck, I'll give that to the mate to get unstuck. And I pick up the other rod and start fishing right away. So it just so happened I was fishing like whole crabs all day on a sweetheart on a, I'm sorry, I was fishing half crabs on a slot on a slider rig. And I wanted to switch up and start fishing whole crabs on a sweetheart rig. So I gave Sully my rod. I'm like, yo, if you want to use it, try this one. And it was the one with the slider rig on it. He took it, baited up, started fishing, started catching fish. He was actually doing pretty well. He didn't have it for probably a half an hour. And I'm, I'm up there fishing, doing my thing. I'm casting up towards the bow. And all of a sudden, I look over my shoulder out of the corner of my eye, and I see Sully in the corner. And he's knees to the rail. He's in perfect position. And that rod is just like double over, man. And it's got a big fish on. I mean, I've seen a couple 20s caught on this fish. Bro, she was, she was deep. And Sully had the rod tip up, and he was on the reel, and he was just hanging on. And it just did exactly what it needed to do. And it seemed like it seemed like that fish was digging on top of that wreck. It probably seemed like 30 seconds or so. It just seemed like an eternity. I took my camera out and started taking pictures one-handed. I'm just like, boom, 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 boom. The fish made a turn. Sully got a couple turns on him. He fish start. He did exactly what we spoke about early in the morning when we were on our way out. We were kind of rehashing this about how to fight large fish, and we were talking about it. And it, he was absolutely on autopilot, but he did it absolutely perfect. He just did such a wonderful job, and it couldn't happen to a, a more wonderful guy because he is just a salt of the earth, <coughs> absolutely a class gentleman, and. When that fish came up and the captain netted it, it was just a really a special moment for everybody. And then when the captain put it on the scale and and it, he, and he didn't say right away, but he, he gave me this look like, wow. And I was like, what's it say? And he said, 20, he said, it's teetering on 26. 
And I said, okay. So I, we unhooked it. We put it in the live well. We took it out in a little bit, took some pictures. We put it back in a live well. So it was, it was okay. On the way in, it was kind of shot. It did end up dying. You know, it did end up bleeding out through the gills and all. But a few minutes later, we're getting ready to start fishing again. And I'm like, yo, Cap, I said, do me a favor. I said, take that rig off of Sully's rod. Give him a new rig. I just kind of thought in my head, let's just, let's make sure he has his sinker and his hooks in case he wants to get a mount or whatever. And Captain rigged them up and we all went back to fishing. And when we were coming in, it was kind of starting to hit that we might have something here. So we, it was kind of radio silent. We were out of radio mood and then we were coming in. I, I texted my buddy, Joseph Gorski, who was on Allison's Nightmare, and they had a day of their life out there. I think they had like four or five double-digit fish that day with Captain Chris. And, um, you know, we were texting on the way in, and we all met at the dock and saw the fish on the scale and all. And it was it was just real. I was just couldn't be any happier for Sully. He's such a great dude, and he fishes so much. He's such a class gentleman. It was really nice to share that moment with my buddy, Joseph Gorski, who again, he's, you know, such an awesome guy. I just couldn't have been happier. I was, I was just happy. I was there to, to take some pictures and, and enjoy that moment. Okay, so, so what was the end weight and measurements of that fish, that, that state record? The end weight was 25.8 pounds. 28, 25.8 pounds. And how, and who, who, who had the record, who had the record that it broke? The record before, I don't know who had it, but that was caught on Fishing Fever too, and it was like twenty five three, I think. Yeah, it was on. Tom, it was, Tom on was telling me mm -hmm. like the guy that caught it, he wasn't even like a, he wasn't like somebody like Sully really earned that fish. Right. So we we were a little extra glad to see him get it. So Fishing Fever literally broke his own record, like on his boat. <laughs> yup. That's just that's just an incredible. But you day. know, there's days when a charter captain. There's days when a charter captain will know when he's got the right crew and he's got the right guys, when he mm -hmm. has the right conditions, he'll go to some special places. Right. That he knows you know, he'll that. go to places that he thinks have big fish that if you if you don't have the right crew, you might not want to go to that spot because you you think the guy's gonna bust them off, you know. Mm -hmm. I, I could totally understand that. If I had a spot that had big fish. And then I brought a bunch of okay guys that I knew that might not be able to make it work. I wouldn't bring them there. But if I had a crew of like six sharpshooters on board, I'm definitely taking them there because any one of those six, I know for a fact, can bring up that big fish. So You're right. It, it's the same way. It, it's, this, it's the same way on Fishmonger, on Fever, on a lot of boats. The guys that we fish with, they're all so good. It's like, <coughs> it's like you're playing on an all-star team. Mm -hmm. It's like you may be the best shooter on your regular team, but when you step on the ice with four other guys and they, and like one is better than the next one, it's like, bro, just, just check your ego, man. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? Cause mm -hmm. there's, there ain't no time for that kind of stuff. Man, that's one, that's one, one hell of a story. And it's also in the magazine. If you guys, also, listen guys to it, you, you, know, if you do break off a big fish, I mean, talking about equipment and failures and stuff if you do hook up with a big fish and you bust them off chances are it will shut the bite down on that wreck for the rest of the day so a lot of times the anchor the, the captain at that point he'll wait 10 minutes if nobody's getting any bites he'll have to leave and go to another wreck so you not only lose the big fish 
but you also kill that big fish spot for all the other anglers on board. That's crazy. And any, any thought on why that happens? Yeah. It's like picture, picture you living in a house with your grandmom and grandpa and all your brothers and sisters and everybody's kids. And all of a sudden somebody comes down and pulls grandpa out of a window, pulls them out 20 feet in the air, shakes them around a little bit. And all of a sudden grandpa gets away and comes back in the window do you think that the whole house is going to know what the hell happened to grandpa? Yeah, definitely. Well, grandpa's going to start screaming through that window. You know, like no one touched. Panic. Yeah. Like, right. Grandpa... There's a sense of panic and mm -hmm. something is wrong in, in the world of that wreck. And with those vibrations and those panic vibrations. And when he does get away, you know, if he gets pulled out of the hole and he just goes away, well, everybody doesn't know something happened to grandpa right away. But if he busts off that line and he gets back into that bottom and he is absolutely panicked, mm -hmm. all those, you know, your family, you know each other, all those fish are family. They live in that little world and it shuts it down uh, more often than not, not all the time, but more often than not, it will shut it cold down. I'm put it that way. I totally understand where you're coming from and I see it. I get it now. All it's right, freaky, so right? It is very freaky. That's uh, weird, but I mean, gets, I mean, the way you put it, like being family and stuff like that, it's totally understandable now from that perspective. Um, so to this mm -hmm. date, what is your personal blackfish? I always wonder because I always see you holding big fish, but I don't know what your personal best is. 15-3. And it probably would have weighed more. I caught it on I caught it on Kate May Lady. And when I pulled it up, we went to go take pictures of it and it blew its intestines out of its butt like six inches long. Wow. And I didn't want it to look really, I didn't want it to look horrible in the picture. So I actually took scissors and cut it off, mm -hmm. not realizing that probably would have added a few more, but 15-3, beautiful big male blackfish. That's the biggest one I, I personally caught so far. So far, 15-3, still a hell of a fish, man. Still working, bro. Need a new PB. Yeah, you need to, you're going to, you're going to join a 20, the 20 pound club, right? You know what? We all have our unspoken goals, but yeah, that, that's been a goal of mine for a long time. All right. So now, uh, so now we just went through that whole intense, crazy breakdown of hunting big tog. Now let's break away from that just a little bit. And let's talk about some of your other favorite fisheries that you enjoy besides hunting big jumbo blackfish. What else, whatever kind of mm -hmm. other kind of fishing do you enjoy? I love drifting for fluke in the back bay in the springtime and like, uh, late April, May, June, especially behind like Margate back in back in those little channels back there. Mm -hmm. That's one of my favorites. Um, spring drum fishing in <coughs> Delaware Bay is really cool. That's a, that's a lot of a lot of fun. I really like doing that. And I really like fishing plugs in the surf for bass at night. Okay. Well, that's not so bad. The uh, the fluke thing is something we're going to talk about. We're going to we're going to definitely talk about this close to spring, but we're definitely going to do it. Uh, I've never done the drum thing in Delaware Bay. Um, I've heard a lot about it, but I mean, maybe something interesting I may try try it this year since I'm always down there anyway. Um, bass, well, you know me, bass. I'm all about bass all the time. All right. So yeah, a lot uh, of times when you're drum fishing, you're kind of you sometimes catch stripers as bycatch because usually mm -hmm. for stripers. For, for drum fish, we're either using she crabs or we're using clams. Mm -hmm. And you're out there in, you know, early May 
So there's plenty of bass around Delaware Bay. At least there used to be, but sometimes we get one as bycatch when we're drum fishing. Mm -hmm. Now, is it true that drum fishing is very messy? <laughs> uh, yeah, you're shucking a lot of clams. Um, you're shucking a lot of clams, messing up the boat a little bit. But when you when you gaff the fish because it's so use the small ones we net them the big ones you gaff them you bring them in you put a rope around you throw them over the side of the boat if you keep that fish man by the time you get them back to the dock and clean that fish it is an absolute it is an absolute mess yeah it's horrible i felt so bad last time we were out because <clears throat> we kept a couple of them and my cousin billy muller he cleaned the fish and he's used to it because he has his boat in the morris river and i looked at him and i said brother i said we're going, we're going to do this again, I said, but I don't think I'm going to keep any next time. <laughs> it's definitely it's definitely an amazing fish. I want to give it a go. So we'll definitely have to figure that out this year. Uh, so up next, this is what we got. So our listeners' all-time favorite questions. Uh, what would be a dream fishing trip of yours if you had the opportunity to? Mm, I'd, really, I'd really like to go to Cabo and fish for sailfish on the fly rod. Ooh. I've done some really, really cool things. I mean, I had a day where I caught, I caught a hat trick of tuna off the Jersey coast on fly tackle, where I caught a bonita and an albacore and a bluefin tuna all on fly gear on the same day. That was very cool. Oh, that's a super. Yeah. I also like just, you know, I really enjoy um, just focusing on in skinny waters for large fluke uh there's there's a couple spots i fish and yeah when it comes time when it comes time to slack tide where everybody starts running in that's usually where i'll be working my way towards a couple of holes there's a couple big holes i know of mm -hmm. and slack tide on a day when there's no wind you'll probably find me sitting in the middle of that 40 foot hole working my bucktail up and down or maybe i'll be like right next to the bridge where the uh where the rubble pile on the bridge meets the sand Mm -hmm. You know, and I'll be I'll be holding right in there, working some working some couple ounce bucktails up and down and getting more than my share of nice fluke in there. Nice. So you guys, this is just a preview of what what we might be bringing up back in spring for those big fluke guys. So uh, just keep an eye out for that when we're going to bring Frank back. Uh, top three bucket list fish that you want to knock out in the next few seasons. Do you have any? Blackfish over 20. Fluke over twelve in the in the back, mm -hmm. and that Nantucket Shoals nonsense, <laughs> and a, and a bass over fifty in the surf. Well, that's pretty much uh, that's pretty much all of us Jersey anglers kind of gold double digit double digit tog doormat fluke and a, a fifty pound bass on the, on the surf, right? Yeah, but I'm looking for a blackfish over 20, so yeah, a little but, bigger yeah, than a double yeah. digit. But yeah, a little bit bigger than double digit. I've been doing it for a while, so I gotta <laughs> earn my spot, just like everybody else. You'll get it. I, I have faith that you're gonna, you're gonna that 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 20 is gonna sit on the deck one day with your phone, and we're all we're gonna all be clapping behind our laptops and phones, jumping up and down for you. Don't worry. <laughs> Thank you. Appreciate that. You know, life is short, man. All you can hope to do is make some friends along the way, and I'm not going to sit here and say I'm better. I'm uh, no, I'm, you know, I, I'm just not that kind of dude. I'll earn it just like everybody else. But I really do enjoy um, sharing knowledge. You know, like Lefty Cray always said, don't show knowledge, share knowledge. And if I can, 
if I can just do a little bit better in this world and, and help some guys just a little bit, maybe that's why I'm here. And that's exactly why we always, we ask you to come on now. We're just going to start wrapping things up here. Uh, it was an incredible show talking to you, but uh, let us know where, where listeners can find you on social media, if they want to follow you. Um, and also, can you do any seminars this year coming up where they can actually personally meet you and talk to you? Absolutely. Yeah. Hit me up on Facebook and Instagram. Um, really no big mystery. Just my name, Frank, F-R-A-N-K, Mihalik, M-I-H-A-L-I-C. On Facebook and on Instagram. I got seminars coming up. I have all three days at the, at the Oaks Fishing Show, at the Philadelphia Fishing Show. And we're doing something different there. Instead of just a trophy blackfish seminar, how do you think it would be if me and Tom Daffin did a trophy blackfish seminar together? We're both going to present at the same time. Well, that's what you got going on at Oaks. Um, I'm also going to be at the Atlantic City Boat Show. I'm trying to work something out with the Expo, the Saltwater Expo up there. And I'm really looking forward to getting back to it. The couple of years with COVID has been horrible. And I'm really looking forward to showing off some of the new seminars that I put together. And I'm looking forward to seeing a lot of people at the shows. Definitely. And uh, plug in any companies that you work with. You know, we know, we know, you know, you work with quite a few companies, but anything that, you know, that you want to put out there for people to let them know. Well, shout out to Ryan White from Hatteras Jacks in the Outer Banks. Ryan is the U.S. importer for Century Fishing Rods. If you need to get any of these Century Fishing Rods, you can reach out to Ryan at Hatteras Jacks. Um, another big shout out to my boy Nick Cicero over at Tsunami. Love Nick. Great guy. And again, these are guys that, uh, you know, it's, it's not... I don't want money. I don't want free stuff. I just want the opportunity to help products develop into better quality products so we can so we can get better products for less money and get more of an opportunity to catch big fish. You know, you can you can buy tsunami tackle. I mean, you know, when you fish by yourself, you can afford to buy century tackle. But when you're younger and you have a family and stuff, tsunami stuff is really, really hard to beat. And it's it's great to help get the kids into it as well definitely uh great great for hooking up everyone but those companies they're two solid companies centuries is centuries is a rod company i've just started following and i mean i've been doing the surf thing for a while so i'm familiar with their slingshots and stuff like that but like this whole jigging and and wreck fishing thing is totally new and i'm definitely going to be seeing frank at these uh shows because uh, I want to actually hold some in my hand. Same thing for the listeners out there, guys. If you guys get an opportunity, uh, check out some of the shows that uh, Century Century, uh, Century will be in. Uh, put a, put one of those rods in your hand and see how you like the feel. Um, but once again, thank thank you, Frank, for coming on the podcast. It was an incredible podcast. It definitely went way past my expectations about the information that you shared with us this this, this evening. Thank you, Quad. My pleasure. Yeah, no problem. Uh, you have a great rest of your night. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, once again, the legend is here. Gave you all this helpful information. Take everything he took, write it down, listen to it again. You're going to have to listen to this podcast four or five times to get all the information that he uh, gave out today because all of these are gems. This is one of those that you just want to write in a logbook. Don't throw them out because this, this is what's going to help you put that big fish on that deck one day. 
once again, thank you, Frank. Have a great night. I'm going to stay on a few extra minutes, do an outro, and uh, I'll see you in a few weeks at um, the Oaks. Looking forward to it. Thanks again. You got it. Have a good night, bro. You too. All right, and there you have it, ladies and gentlemen, another incredible episode with one of those talking legends from our area, Frank Mahalik. Uh, it was a pleasure having him on. Too much information for me to kind of comprehend at one time. I'm going to listen to this podcast myself while I'm editing because, uh, I mean, in the end run, what do we do? We all want – we get to the point where quantity is a thing where we just want to feel coolers. When we get to that age or that kind of like that, that status of where we're at, we don't think about quantity to it. We think about quality. And that's where guys like Frank come in with, you know, tips and tricks and stuff to help us, you know, land trophy fish. Cause you know, that's what he, that's what he loves to do. He loves targeting big trophy blackfish. So, I mean, I mean, how much more information do you want to get from him? He literally went down through rods, reels, lines, tackle, baits, hook sets, fighting big fish, what to look for, when to fish, where to fish on the party boats, on the charter boats. Uh, he explained everything to a T, guys. I mean, literally, he laid it out for you. So the playbook's there. All you guys got to do is put that play into action. Um, so once again tonight, I, we'd like to thank Frank one more time for coming on board with us. It was def definitely a pleasure. Um, if you haven't already done so, guys, make sure you like, subscribe, follow us on Facebook at Tide Chasers Podcast. We're on Instagram at Tide underscore Chasers. And also, all, any of your favorite podcast platforms out there. Also, you can find us on Waypoint TV Podcast Collectives. Uh, once again, name is Qua. Thank you for signing on and checking us out. We'll see you on the next one. Until then, keep those lines tight.